New York, this is Democracy Now! Yeah, Myanmar military junta has been you know, using airstrikes, specifically targeting civilians, uh, clinics and monasteries, elementary schools, community gatherings, uh, concerts uh, across, the, across the various regions of Myanmar. Over 100 people, including 30 children, have been killed in Burma. After the military junta bombed civilians, we'll look at the crisis there more than two years after the coup. Then to the Philippines, where nearly 18,000 U.S., Filipino and Australian troops hold their largest military drills ever, despite protests from China. We'll speak to a leading Filipino activist. Clearly, the war games are intended to project U.S. power in Asia. It's not intended to defend the Philippines. It's not intended to help the Philippines modernize. It's really intended to showcase U.S. power, and it is a preparation for war. And as leaked Pentagon documents show U.S. and British special forces are operating inside Ukraine, we'll continue our discussion with Spyfell author James Bamford, who says the leaks challenge the corporate media's portrayal of the Ukraine war. The documents give a far more realistic view, uh, saying that... uh uh, basically, it's going to come down to a, uh, a stalemate. Uh, there, there is no, not going to be any big winners necessarily. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Calls for stricter gun control laws rang out of Kentucky and Tennessee Tuesday in the wake of two mass shootings. In Louisville, Kentucky, officials said the gunman who killed five people at a bank Monday legally purchased the AR-15-style weapon of war used in the attack just last week. At least three survivors of the attack remain hospitalized as of Tuesday. Dr. Jason Smith, chief medical officer at University of Louisville Health, pleaded with lawmakers to stop the endless tragedies. And people say I'm tired, but I'll be answered. It's more than tired. I'm weary. There's only so many times you can walk into a room and tell someone they're not coming home tomorrow. And it just breaks your heart when you hear someone screaming, Mommy or Daddy, to everyone who helps make policy, both at state, city, federal. I would simply ask you to do something. Because doing nothing, which is what we've been doing, is not working. Meanwhile, Democratic Mayor Craig Greenberg said 40 people in Louisville had lost their lives to gun violence so far this year, and that, quote, the laws we have now are enabling violence and murder. Please change our state law to let Louisville make its own decisions about reducing the amount of illegal guns on our streets and gun violence that is killing far too many people in mass shootings, in individual shootings, in any shootings. Mayor Greenberg himself is a survivor of a shooting last year at his campaign headquarters. Louisville's holding a vigil today for the victims of Monday's massacre. Also Tuesday, Tennessee's Republican Governor Bill Lee signed an executive order tightening background checks for gun purchases. He also called on state lawmakers to pass red flag laws that would allow authorities to remove guns from people deemed to be a risk to others or themselves. This comes two weeks after the mass shooting at a Nashville Christian school killed six 
six people, three of them nine-year-olds, on one week after the GOP-led ouster of two black Democrats who led a peaceful protest against the gun violence on the Tennessee House floor. One of the lawmakers, Justin Jones, was reinstated Monday, while the other, Justin Pearson, could be reinstated today. The Environmental Protection Agency is proposing new rules to slash vehicular emissions and speed up the transition to electric cars. The Biden administration is unveiling the proposal today, which will require two-thirds of new cars and a quarter of new heavy trucks to be all electric by 2032. The audio industry has said the tight timeline could result in significant job and profit losses, but analysts say such measures are needed for the U.S. to stand a chance at reducing its emissions at a pace that could avert the worst of the climate catastrophe. Here in New York, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg sued Jim Jordan, the Republican chair of the House Judiciary Committee, citing an unprecedentedly brazen and con unconstitutional attack on the DA's office over its investigation and prosecution of Donald Trump. Congressman Jordan has demanded confidential documents and testimony from Bragg and members of his office. Bragg is seeking to block former prosecutor Mark Pomerantz from having to comply with a subpoena issued by the Judiciary Committee last week. D.A. Bragg says his office has received over 1,000 calls and emails from Trump supporters with, quote, violent and racist vitriol, including death threats, since Trump was indicted for falsifying business records to cover up a 2016 hush money scheme. The United Nations mission to Afghanistan said it's reviewing its operations while staff continues to remain out of the office following a Taliban ban on women working for non-governmental organizations. This is U.N. spokesperson Stefan Dijarek. This is putting us in a, in a horrendous situation and, and putting, frankly, the Afghan people in a horrendous situation because we have principles that we have to abide to, humanitarian principles on non-discrimination. Um, we also have to abide by the, the, the de facto authorities themselves also have to abide by the charter in terms of letting us uh, do our work. But we also have to help the millions and millions of Afghans, um, you know, almost 24 million Afghans need humanitarian assistance. Israeli forces shot and killed two Palestinians and injured one other Tuesday near the occupied West Bank city of Nablus. This brings the number of Palestinians killed by Israeli forces since the start of 2023 to 98. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Jewish visitors would be banned from the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound until the end of Ramadan. This comes after Israeli forces forcibly removed and attacked worshippers during multiple raids since the start of Ramadan, triggering cross-border attacks between Israel, Lebanon, Syria and Gaza. In Britain, tens of thousands of junior doctors are on day two of a four-day strike to demand livable wages. It's the latest in a wave of strikes over pay and working conditions at the government-run National Health Service and follows a similar action last month. This is OBGYN Marsha Green speaking from the picket line Tuesday. I've got friends who've left medicine because it's broken them. I had I had to have counselling for PTSD symptoms after the, the COVID oh, pandemic because it was just it was it was a horror, and we're still expected to carry on as though nothing's happened and deteriorating conditions. And it's just it's getting to the point where we're all at breaking point, not just financially but mentally and physically. 
Detroit Congress member Rashida Tlaib led a group of progressive Democrats in urging Attorney General Merrick Garland to drop the charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and withdraw the request for his extradition from the U.K., where he was arrested four years ago. Assange faces up to 175 years in prison on espionage and hacking charges for exposing U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. In a letter, the lawmakers write, quote, the prosecution of Mr. Assange, if successful, not only sets a legal precedent whereby journalists or publishers can be prosecuted, but a political one as well, unquote. The letter was also signed by Congress members Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, Greg Kassar, Alexandra Casio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley. The Democratic governors of New York, Massachusetts, California, Washington and other states have pledged to continue providing medication abortions after a Trump-appointed federal judge revoked the FDA's approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone on Friday. Democratic governors said they are stockpiling medication in order to make sure they have enough to treat any pregnant patients who need it. This is New York Governor Kathy Hochul. New York State will create a stockpile of misoprostol, another form of medication abortion. Extremist judges have made it clear that they won't stop at any one particular drug or service. So it's going to ensure that New Yorkers will continue to have access to medication abortion no matter what. In New York City, rights advocates are sounding the alarm after Mayor Eric Adams announced Tuesday the police department will start deploying new high-tech devices, including two robots and a GPS tracker for stolen cars. This includes the infamous DigiDog, which will allegedly be used in life-threatening situations such as bomb threats. Plans for deploying the robotic dog were scrapped in 2021 under then-Mayor de Blasio following community outcry. The city spent $750,000 of assets forfeiture funds to acquire the DigiDogs from Boston Dynamics. The NYPD and Mayor Adams, a former police captain, unveiled the new technology during a high-profile press, high press event in Times Square Tuesday, with Adams announcing DigiDog is out of the pound. In response, the New York Civil Liberties Union said, quote, spending mass amounts of money on new policing toys for the NYPD is not a serious response to public safety concerns. We we should be investing in more housing, better schools and increased jobs, not invasive surveillance technology for law enforcement, they said. Earlier this year, state senators Jabari Brisport and Julia Salazar introduced legislation that would ban police from using robots. In Missouri, the Republican-controlled House Tuesday approved a budget that completely defunds public libraries. The move came in response to an ACLU lawsuit filed by the Missouri Association of School Librarians and the Missouri Library Association challenging a recent law that bans certain books. The measure has led to the removal of over 300 books from school libraries, many with LGBTQ characters and social justice topics. Missouri Democrats have denounced GOP censorship. This is State Representative Peter Meredith. I feel like we're starting to live in a dystopian future from like 1984 or uh, Fahrenheit 4.11 or whatever, uh, 4.51, thank you, um, where we're talking about book bans from the government and then the government being mad at librarians as the threat to our kids and defunding public libraries. That's the real world here today in Republican-led Missouri. 
Meanwhile, in Texas, Llano County officials are considering shutting down the local public library system after a federal judge ruled the banning of some dozen books, mostly for children, is unconstitutional. Llano County has been ordered to put the books back in circulation, prompting Llano County commissioners to hold a special meeting later this week to determine whether libraries should close instead of complying with the order. And Chicago will host the 2024 Democratic National Convention, beating out the other finalists, Atlanta and New York. The announcement was made by the DNC Tuesday, which also sent a strong signal President Biden will seek re-election, though he has yet to formally make an announcement. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Burma, where the military junta is escalating its airstrikes on civilians. On Tuesday, it carried out its deadliest attack yet, when it bombed a gathering at a community hall, killing an estimated 100 people, including 30 children. Graphic images posted online and verified by Al Jazeera and other media show burning limbs at the scene. This is how the BBC's Jonathan Head described the attack, tweeting, quote, horrific airstrike by military jets and helicopters this morning, video posted by locals too awful to upload here, but they say at least 53 dead, including women and children. He continued, quote, I cannot begin to describe how terrible the scenes are at Pazigi, so many bodies so horribly mangled. Members of Burma's government in exile condemned the attack as a heinous act that constitutes a war crime. The BBC and others have reported the military junta has increasingly used airstrikes to crush the resistance since it seized power in a 2021 coup, often targeting schools and clinics run by the opposition. This comes as the United Nations has warned of worsening humanitarian and human rights crises in Burma with mass arrests, torture of prisoners, the killing of civilians and media repression. For more, we're joined by Mong Zarni, a Burmese scholar, dissident human rights activist, co-founder of the Forces of Renewal for Southeast Asia, grassroots network of pro-democracy scholars and human rights activists across Southeast Asia. His recent piece, titled Myanmar Military's Acts of Terrorism from the Sky and Savage Beheadings on the Ground. Zarni, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you explain what's happened in Burma, this latest attack, as you understand it? Well, Myanmar military is losing uh, against the armed resistance on the ground that has sprung up uh, since the military coup two years ago. So they are increasingly relying on airstrikes and they are targeting the most vulnerable among the resistance communities. I mean, the whole country is up in arms. I mean, literally, you know, every single community is involved in some kind of armed resistance against this, uh, you know, 60 years old military dictatorship. And so they're trying to terrorize the civilian populations into submission. What happened uh, yesterday at Zabiji, uh, uh, you know, a large village uh, not too far from Mendeley, where I grew up. Uh, this is the, the, the Zagain is the, uh, the next uh, province or state from Mendeley Division. And uh, what happened was that the, uh, you know, about 800 uh, villagers gather to open the uh, 
uh, local administrative services or office that the military got wind of the uh, opening ceremony, and they decided that uh, this was an occasion, a legitimate occasion to target civilian. This is not indiscriminate killing uh, of the mixed, uh, you know, armed fighters and the civilian. This is civilian gathering. They knew it, and they targeted the civilians. Targeting civilians for political gains uh, and terrorizing them. It, it, it's, you know, by any definition, it's terroristic uh, activity. That's why, you know, I call this the, the terrorism from the sky. After the airstrikes, Arnie, Amnesty International released an appeal titled Urgent Need to Suspend Aviation Fuel as Airstrikes Wreak Havoc. Who is providing the fuel and what do you think needs to be done? Well, you know, turning off the um, the flow of aviation fuel uh, that is transported through several ASEAN countries, Association of Southeast Asian countries like Singapore, uh, Thailand, and among others. Uh, yes, uh, that need to be turned off immediately. But Amy, the problem is uh, not simply that Amy, aviation. Uh, fuel is enabling the regime. What has enabled the regime, uh, you know, to carry on as business as usual? The uh, you know the, the increasing use of airstrikes against civilians are three things. One is, um, you know, the the, uh, uh, the the Security Council's failure to take any meaningful action. As you know, it's paralyzed uh, body. And the second is uh, China's recent uh, resumption of its, uh, you know, uh, backing of the military. China decided that the, they are going to back the military because the, uh, the democratic resistance is at least notionally backed by the United States and uh, the European Union. And the third, and also very uh, equally significant, is this deafening silence from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. ASEAN has been a complete failure, uh, you know, in, in the case of uh, Cambodian genocide, uh, Rohingya genocide 40 years later, and it is failing when its member state is using air force to terrorize the civilian population, committing all kinds of like uh, atrocious uh, um, uh, cracking of the military, that uses uh, Russia's uh, gunship helicopters, uh, the Western democracy's failure to really back the uh, democratic resistance as it is doing in Ukraine. And thirdly, the ASEAN's um, uh, regional bloc's complete and utter failure to lift a finger to stop the killings. Who else is working with the Burmese military? And by the way, just for people to understand, the term Burma and Myanmar, the military hunter renaming Burma, Myanmar, um, we refer to it as Burma, Zarni. Well, who else? I mean, like, you know, a lot of— um, yeah, of course, like uh, we could, uh, you know, point fingers at, um, the, you know, the, uh, Burma's immediate neighbors like Thailand or India or China that are involved in, uh, um, you know, uh, various uh, strategic uh, rivalries or economic uh, contests. But there are also like, you know, massive number of Western corporations like from the U.S., from Canada, United, uh, United Kingdom, European Union, uh, Australia, Japan, you know. 
And so the, this is not that different from what happened in Tsarist uh, Russia. You know, a uh, hundred years ago, Tsarist Russia was uh, propped up or financially backed by French bankers and English economic and political interest. And the, against that, a Russian revolution took place. And that is what is happening today because, you know, the, the democratic struggles don't happen in a vacuum. We are fighting a very, very steep uphill battle. And the uh, United Nations as a system of uh, political states are also failing. So there is so much uh, palpable rage and frustration among the Burmese uh, resistance fighters and the uh, society as a whole. And so, but the people have had enough. They're not taking it uh, lying down, uh, you know, the, 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 the abuses and, um, you know, years of repression, they are fighting. They are, you know, women are making bombs and involved in like, you know, uh, the, the, the sabotage operations. Young men, journalists, uh, doctors, engineers, literally thousands of them have joined the armed resistance. Every single Burmese family knows or supports or has a member of a fighter uh you know, that is against the, the regime. This is like, you know, the, the 1940s Europe with partisans fighting the, uh, the Nazi occupation. Among Zarni, um, two years ago, the U.S. government announced it's, quote, taking steps to prevent the generals from improperly accessing more than a billion dollars in Burmese government funds held in the United States. Your response to that? And is, is there a way to funnel that money to the Burmese people? Yes, I think, you know, the, the, the contrast between the Biden and I mean, it was a, a President Biden who within 10 days of the coup uh, walked on, uh, you know, White House uh, you know, press stage and then declared that, uh, you know, this uh, the, he was going to freeze one billion U.S. So uh, uh, dollar. Uh, that belongs to the people of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi's civilian government deposited their money in the U.S. financial institutions. Biden froze it. That's the Burmese people's money. And, and, and then, on, you know, on the other hand, you know, the U.S. administration, as you know, has pumped up more than 50 billion U.S. dollar and empty nearly all the shelves, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, Pentagon arsenal to support um, the uh, Ukrainian resistance, you know, we are happy that Ukraine gets a support and a unity of solidarity among Western nations. But we are fighting a similarly atrocious Russian-backed regime in Burma, and we are not getting a penny back. You know, so I think we, we are not asking for American taxpayers to underwrite our, uh, you know, liberation struggle. We are simply saying we have one billion dollar that Joe Biden froze, unfreeze the money, and make sure that uh, the you know the corruption doesn't mushroom uh, out of that um, you know uh, the war chest. And there are ways to manage this wisely and with uh, financial transparency. We cannot fight and win a liberation struggle on empty stomachs and homemade Molokov uh, cocktails. When, um, the, you know, the repressive Myanmar military is well armed with Russian made helicopters and, you know, MIG 29 jets and, you know, China's backing China's arm. 
we need to have a level playing field. We are fighting a, a, a you know atrocious 60-year-old military dictatorship that has perpetrated genocide, and that is perpetrating a long series of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and every grave crimes ever written in international law. Biden needs to unfreeze the the money. He gave a speech at the Summit of Democracy, the second summit held in Seoul, and he did not even make a mention of Myanmar. While he, you know, he praised on bravery of Ukrainian resistance, we are happy that Ukrainian brothers and sisters received the Western's backing. But, you know, we should also be receiving solidarity and support and material support. Mang Zarni, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Burmese scholar, dissident, human rights activist, co-founder of the Forces of Renewal for Southeast Asia, or FORSI, a grassroots network of pro-democracy scholars and human rights activists across Southeast Asia. We'll link to your piece, Myanmar Military's Acts of Terrorism from the Sky and Savage Beheadings on the Ground. Next up, the Philippines, where thousands of U.S., Filipino and Australian troops are holding the largest military drills ever, despite Chinese protests. Stay with us. One minute of silence, Erickson Acosta, Monette Silvestri, and our next guest, Renato Reyes Jr. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Nearly 18,000 troops from the United States, the Philippines, and Australia are taking part in the largest ever military drills that they've held in the South China Sea. The military exercise began on Tuesday and will continue until April 28th. This comes as tension is escalating between the U.S. and China. The Philippines, a former U.S. colony, recently agreed to give the United States access to four more of its military bases, including two located in the northern province of uh, Cagayan, which is about 250 miles from Taiwan. Ties between Washington and Manila have been growing closer since the inauguration of Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., yes, the son of the former U.S.-backed dictator by the same name. On Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with their Filipino counterparts in Washington and issued a joint statement agreeing to expand military ties between the U.S. and Philippines. This is Secretary Austin. In the face of coercion and gray zone co aggression, Secretary Galvez and I agreed to redouble our efforts to strengthen our combined ability to resist armed attack by modernizing our armed forces. We also discussed near-term plans to complete a security sector assistance roadmap 
to support the delivery of priority defense platforms over the next five to ten years, including radars, unmanned aerial systems, military transport aircraft, and coastal and air defense systems. The Philippines Foreign Secretary Enrique Manalo welcomed the U.S. offer for more military assistance. We especially welcome the United States' pledge to fast-track and ramp-up support for the modernization of our defense, civilian law enforcement, and humanitarian assistance and disaster response uh, capabilities, especially in the maritime domain, as well as the implementation of EDCA projects and investments in and, in and around EDCA-agreed locations. Meanwhile, in the Philippines, protests have taken place this week outside the U.S. Embassy in Manila and Quezon City, the home of the Filipino military. Clearly, the war games are intended to project U.S. power in Asia. It's not intended to defend the Philippines. It's not intended to help the Philippines modernize. It's really intended to showcase U.S. power, and it is a preparation for war. That was Renato Reyes, Jr., the secretary general of Bayan, an alliance of leftist groups in the Philippines opposed to U.S. militarism and intervention in the Philippines, speaking outside the U.S. embassy in Manila. He joins us now from the Philippine capital, Manila. Renato Reyes, Jr., welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the significance of what um, Secretary Austin, Lloyd Austin, the um, defense secretary of the United States, is calling the largest ever um, war game? exercise of its kind in the South China Sea and what this means to you. Well, good evening from Manila. The uh, recent war games or um, the, the ongoing uh, military exercise in the Philippines is really intended to project uh, U.S. power in this part of the region. Uh, and it has a, a very provocative nature uh, considering the tensions between the U.S. and China. Uh, the U.S. really wants to uh, provoke China, and for the first time, they're doing live exercises where they're actually uh, going to simulate the sinking of a ship in the West Philippine Sea. This is uh, on top of having uh, expanded U.S. bases in the Philippines, uh, especially in areas that are near Taiwan and near the uh, South China Sea. Uh, all these taken together uh, would really raise tensions uh, in the region and would trigger an endless arms race between the U.S. and China. And uh, in that scenario, uh, the Philippines would be caught between two opposing giants. Uh, it is not in our interest to uh, see the conflict escalate. Uh, we want peace in the region. We want respect for our sovereignty, for our sovereign rights. We don't want incursions from China, but we don't want to be used as a staging ground for U.S. military intervention and hegemony in the region. So, uh, our position is that we do not welcome these exercises. They will have a long-lasting negative effect on the region, and they are also uh, historically an affront to Philippine sovereignty. So, in the last few weeks, the Philippines government announced the location of four new U.S. military bases. Uh, can you talk about their significance and the military presence? I mean, going back well over 100 years, the U.S. occupied the Philippines in 1898. Uh, but what this means now? Well, uh, the Philippines hosted U.S. military bases from 1947 to 1991. These bases were all used for U.S. wars abroad, so uh, the Philippines became a launching pad for uh, the U.S. Uh, war in Vietnam. You were also involved in uh, the wars in the Middle East and the Iraq War. So 
it's pretty much the same scenario right now. They're putting bases north of the Philippines so that the U.S. can have uh, quick deployment uh, for incidents related to Taiwan. They put up uh, bases uh, in the western part of the Philippines facing the South China Sea so that the U.S. can deploy ships um, whenever it's necessary uh, to project its power uh, in that part of the region. So all these bases uh, are not for defensive uh, purposes. They're actually uh, allowing the U.S. to preposition weapons, to preposition uh, warships, uh, to station troops, which can be deployed at any time overseas for offensive military action. So that practically drags the Philippines uh, to a new round of conflicts, which are not in our interest. It's a repeat of what we experienced uh, during the Vietnam War and other uh, U.S. Uh, wars thereafter. China's foreign ministry has said the United States is strengthening its military deployment in the Philippines would only lead to more tension and instability in the region. This is spokesperson Mao Ning at a press briefing last week. The facts are very clear. The United States, out of its own selfish interest and with zero-sum mindset, has continued to strengthen its military deployment in the region, the result of which is bound to increase tensions and jeopardize regional peace and stability. Regional countries should think deeply about what is appropriate and what is mutually beneficial, as to make choices that are truly conducive to their own interests and to regional peace and stability. So... Renato, if you could um, respond to the Chinese spokesperson and also talk about the issue of the exclusive economic zone between China and the Philippines. A decade ago, China began building artificial islands and military bases on reefs in the Spratly Islands and on Scarborough Shoal, uh, which it seized in 2012. Yeah. So there's an ongoing inter-imperialist rivalry between China and the U.S. They're fighting for uh, dominance in this region. So China is claiming 80 percent, 90 percent of the South China Sea as part of its nine dash line claims. And it has reclaimed uh, several areas, uh, artificial islands, artificial islands converted into military bases. On the other hand, you have the U.S. trying to solidify its foothold in the Philippines for its forward bases, as part of the whole U.S. defense umbrella from U.S. bases in Japan, U.S. bases in South Korea, uh, military agreements in the Philippines, as well as military agreements with Australia. So these are the two powers trying to outdo each other. Um, and if uh, the U.S. ramps up its presence in the Philippines and China sees that as an imminent threat, then China would, of course, uh, resort to building more bases on their artificial islands, and it will be a never-ending cycle, uh, an arms race uh, between these two giants. And when when war uh, erupts, who will be at the losing end? Uh, poor countries like the Philippines, uh, those who are not uh, uh, superpowers, uh, they are the biggest losers if the conflict escalates between the U.S. and China. So we're pretty clear that we don't want that to happen. And that's why we don't want uh, these military exercises, live fire drills, the sinking of ships. Uh, these are all very, very provocative actions. Just imagine if China would do such exercises uh, you know, off California. Uh, that would also trigger uh, a very hostile response from the United States. So really... Uh, this whole scenario that you're doing 
it's going to lead to a heightened conflict. It's actually a preparation for war, and it's something that we don't want to happen in the near future. We just have 30 seconds. I'm looking at some of the signs at the protests, green spaces, um, not military bases. Um, can you talk about the environmental impacts of U.S. military bases and the impact on women and girls uh, with the U.S. military there? U.S. bases, U.S. military presence has huge social costs. They leave toxic waste. They destroy uh, heritage, heritage sites. There's prostitution. There's abuse of women. There's rape. There's murder. All these are the usual consequences of prolonged U.S. military presence in any area. Any area in the world, that's the kind of problem that U.S. bases uh, bring about. So uh, as far as social costs are concerned, definitely uh, we do not want to be shouldering uh, that kind of uh, burden as a result of U.S. military presence in the Philippines. Renato Reyes, Jr., we thank you so much for being with us, Secretary General of Bayan, an alliance of leftist groups in the Philippines opposed to U.S. militarism and intervention. Next up, leaked Pentagon documents, how they show U.S. and British special forces operating inside Ukraine as we continue our discussion with SpyFail author James Bamfield. Stay with us. Vampires by Pet Shop Boys. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show looking more at the recently leaked Pentagon documents, which have revealed secrets about the war in Ukraine, as well as U.S. spying on its adversaries and allies, including Israel and South Korea. The BBC reports one document shows dozens of special forces from Western nations, including the U.S., are operating inside Ukraine. The document, which was marked top secret, says the U.K. has 50 special forces, Latvia 17, France 15, U.S. 14, and the Netherlands has one. The Pentagon and Justice Department are investigating the source of the leak. On Tuesday, I interviewed James Bamford, a longtime investigative journalist, author focused on the intelligence community. In 1982, he published The Puzzle Palace, the first book exposing the inner workings of the NSA, the National Security Agency, like many times larger than the CIA. His latest book just out is called Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. I asked Jim Bamford to talk more about what the documents reveal about the Ukraine war, among other issues. Well, I think it uh, paints a clearer picture uh, of what actually is happening over there. There's been uh, the problem on cable news, uh, both uh, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. You get a lot of people that are pro-war, and they're uh, the Congress, members of Congress, senators, and so forth. And uh, they're all giving these upbeat uh, uh, 
um, uh, accounts of, of how well it's going for Ukraine. Um, the documents give a far more realistic view, uh, saying that uh, basically it's going to come down to a, uh, a stalemate. Uh, there, there is no, not going to be any big winners necessarily. And the uh, 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 Ukrainians are in a very bad position because they're not getting enough ammunition. The Russians uh, have far more, um, have much more uh, access to ammunition than the um, Ukrainians do. So there's a, a switch between the, the way America perceives the war, I think, uh, uh, to these documents, which uh, give a more realistic, because it's done with uh, intelligence, more realistic uh, view of how the war is going. Um. There's some interesting findings um, uh, in these documents that have been released. One, The Guardian points out, one slide suggested a small contingent of less than 100 special operations personnel from NATO members France, America, Britain and Latvia were already active in Ukraine. Talk about the significance of that. Well, that's what the Russians have been charging for a long time, that the U.S. is more heavily involved, or not just the U.S., but NATO and our uh, uh, NATO partner countries have been involved uh, uh, far more closely and far more directly with the war than uh, uh, is, is led to believe by, uh, by the government, by uh, the Biden administration. So um, it— adds to the uh, weight of those charges that uh, that the U.S. and its allies and the and NATO partners are, are more heavily involved in this war. And that's a very dangerous situation, since you've got nuclear powers involved—Russia, uh, United States, France, and so forth—all uh, uh, nuclear powers, and uh, we're all fighting over this one piece of territory. And uh, it keeps getting more and more out of hand. So I think that's a very big danger. The New York Times points out military analysts said the documents appear to have been modified in certain parts from their original format, overstating American estimates of Ukrainian war dead and understating estimates of Russian troops killed. The modifications could point to an effort of disinformation by Moscow, the analyst said. Well, I— <laughs> Uh, that's a bit of an overstatement. I think what actually happened, I mean, if you read closely, uh, the documents uh, weren't—the uh, uh, documents were original. They were placed on the Internet uh, in their original form. And then what apparently happened was somebody copied some of those documents, and then they altered a bit of the uh, uh, numerical equivalence of who—how many died on which side and so forth. So uh, the documents are real. The documents are not disinformation. Somebody apparently took some of those documents, a couple of them, and uh, crudely uh, changed a few numbers. But uh, it doesn't affect the overall— uh, value of the documents that are uh, that were released. Another point the New York Times makes: the Russian military may be flailing, but the private Wagner mercenary group, led by an ally of President Vladimir Putin of Russia, is flourishing in much of the world. Wagner is working to thwart American interests in Africa and has explored branching out to Haiti, right under the nose of the United States. Jim Bamford. 
Well, that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, it's not just uh, Russia. It's uh, China has been uh, working hard in, in uh, Africa to uh, uh, to develop. I mean, as the U.S. has been bombing Middle Eastern countries and spending trillions and trillions of dollars on these useless wars, we get into the uh, Chinese and, and the Russians, to a large degree, have been spending billions of dollars uh, ingratiating themselves with African countries, building bridges, building Building roads and so forth. So, it's not a big surprise that uh, uh, virtually none of the Russian, uh, none of the African countries have joined in the embargo uh, of Russia or the sanctions. And uh, uh, that's why uh, you know the vice president uh, uh, Harris flew over to Africa to try to regain, uh, bring back some of that uh, goodwill that we uh, have been squandering while we've been um, launching wars in the Middle East. And then, quoting The Washington Post, the documents also demonstrate what's long been understood but never publicly spelled out. Um, the U.S. intelligence community has penetrated the Russian military and its commanders so deeply that it can warn Ukraine in advance of attacks and reliably assess the strengths and weaknesses of Russian forces. A single page in the leaked trove reveals the U.S. intelligence community knew the Russian Ministry of Defense had transmitted plans to strike Ukrainian troop positions in two locations on a certain date in February, and that Russian military planners were preparing strikes on a dozen energy facilities and an equal number of bridges in Ukraine. James Bamford. Yeah, those are the uh, most significant, I think, of all the revelations, because uh, there's only really two ways that the U.S. could have gotten that intelligence. So one is through signals intelligence, the NSA, and the other is through human intelligence, basically the CIA. So um, uh, in either of those cases, uh, the, what the Russians are going to do once they learn this is, is uh, do an extensive uh, mole hunt and, and uh, analysis of, the, uh, of their communication. So the mole hunt, they'll be looking for any humans that might be assisting the United States by telling them this information about what the dates and the times of these planned uh, operations. And they'll be checking all their uh, uh, communications facilities, changing their codes and so forth. Uh, in case we're getting this information by eavesdropping on their communications, by the NSA picking it up. So in either case, it's, uh, it's bad news for the United States because we may be losing that uh, whatever source it was that we were getting that information from. And one of the things NBC pointed out was a February 28th document assessing pathways for Israel to provide lethal aid to Ukraine, providing hypothetical situations that might drive Israel from its balancing act between Kiev and Moscow. Mark's secret, the document also suggests what Israeli weapons could be transferred to Ukraine, like Israel's Javelin equivalent and other missile systems. The analysis says the most plausible scenario is that Jerusalem adopts a Turkish model under U.S. pressure. Like Ankara, it would mean that Israel sells lethal defense systems or provides them through third-party entities while openly advocating for peace and offering to host mediation efforts, James Bamford. Well, once again, uh, it shows how uh, widespread the NSA's eavesdropping capabilities are uh, in terms of picking up what's going on within the uh, Israeli Knesset and the Israeli uh, 
president's office and so forth, or prime minister's office. So um, uh, it shows a wide variety of how, how much we're eavesdropping. The United States has been pushing uh, Israel to get more heavily involved in the uh, uh, supply of weapons to uh, um, and technology to Ukraine, but um, Israel doesn't want to do it because it doesn't want to anger Russia. Uh, Russia is sort of turning a blind eye to Israel's uh, attacks in uh, in Syria, and they're they're afraid that if they um, uh, overtly aid Ukraine um, to a much greater extent, then Russia will uh, be angry at Israel and uh, not allow Israel basically to. Um, send its fighters into Syria anymore. So it's a complicated situation, but uh, the United States is uh, apparently able to eavesdrop on decisions that are made within uh, the Israeli government. And also this latest news out of these documents that Mossad, Israel's spy agency, the equivalent of the U.S. CIA, was pushing Israelis and fomenting a rebellion against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for gutting the Israeli judiciary. Well, it, it shows that we're also eavesdropping on their uh, equivalent of the CIA, basically, the, the Mossad. And uh, in my book, uh, Spy Fail, I write extensively about how we eavesdrop on, uh, on Israel. I mean, there's a huge building— uh, um, uh, in the outskirts of Washington, D.C., uh, in Maryland, where the um, Hebrew linguists are all uh, gathered and they eavesdrop on whatever communications goes in and comes out of the Israeli embassy. So the U.S. does a great deal of eavesdropping on Israel, both within Israel and uh, of its diplomatic facilities in the U.S. And just to refresh our audience's memory, we last had you on, Jim, uh, as we talked about Spy Fail, your new book, and your revelations about Benjamin Netanyahu's interference with the 2016 election. The media made a lot of allegations that Russia was involved with subverting the U.S. elections in 2016. But just lay out once again for us what you learned about Netanyahu's efforts to uh, support Trump in the 2016 election and the extent to which he went, something that is known uh, by the U.S. government and Congress but not revealed. Well, uh, everybody remembers Russiagate and the hysteria that uh, the news media, uh, mainstream news media, basically uh, focused on that for two years, uh, looking under every rock for a Russian spy or Russian collaborator, and they never found any. There never were, was any any uh, collusion between the Trump administration uh, and uh, the Trump campaign and um, the Russian government. So uh, the Mueller report came up uh, with a blank when it came uh, to Russian collusion. What people don't know, until I reported in my book, is the fact that uh, the Mueller group, were, the Mueller investigation was not only looking at Russia, they were also looking at other countries that may have been involved in, in uh, eavesdropping and uh, spying within the U.S. and also uh, being involved with campaigns. And what they found was that there was a Russian—I'm sorry, an Israeli agent who had been sent over by Prime Minister Netanyahu um, to uh, collude with the 
uh, Trump campaign. The idea was that uh, the Israeli agent would pass on intelligence that the uh, Israelis came up with to help the—this uh, is intelligence on Hillary Clinton—to uh, help the Trump campaign uh, win. And the quid pro, uh, uh, pro quo for that was that the Trump uh, uh, campaign, or President Trump, once he was elected, uh, would uh, recognize Jerusalem as being the sole, uh, uh, basically, possession of Israel. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't be divided between Israel and Palestine, which is always would have been the hope to have a peaceful resolution of that. It would be uh, solely uh, 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 Israeli. Uh, so that was the deal. And I discovered this by coming across the actual uh, uh, affidavit, FBI affidavit and search warrant. The search warrant was for uh, the communications of this Israeli agent, and it laid out in the affidavit, the FBI affidavit, exactly how this plot took place. So it was extraordinary to see that uh, all these two years they were doing this investigation on, on uh, Russia and coming up empty, and they never revealed uh, to the American public the fact that uh, there was this uh, Israeli agent who was uh, deliberately attempting to throw the election um, for the benefit of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. So going back, uh, James Bamford, to these latest revelations, I'm wondering—I mean, you have been studying for decades, and Spyfell, your new book, shows this, of course—wondering um, what surprised you most, whether it's the scope of the documents across all of these agencies or where they were released on this gaming platform, the name um, released under, what is it, WowMao, W-O-W-M-A-O? Um, was it uh, the fact that the U.S. government didn't seem on top of it? I think Austin, the defense secretary, was just briefed last week. And what it means, I mean, uh, if they're able to find, and do you think they'll find the person or persons involved with this? Well, basically, all those things surprise me. Uh, you know, it's the first time I've ever seen documents leaked onto a gaming platform. But uh, if I was to guess, uh, just arbitrarily guess, uh, <coughs> Uh, as I mentioned before, there is basically uh, three or four reasons why people steal secrets and make them and, and release them. Um, one is that they're actual spies and they want to make uh, money and they want to sell them to a foreign government. Another is that they um, uh, uh, have ideological reasons. Uh, they want to help a foreign government, so they leak it. Uh, they're not looking for money. They just leak it for ideological reasons. And uh, a third reason is anger. They didn't get the promotion they wanted or they uh, aren't treated as well as they think they should be in the office. So to get back at the uh, at the government or the agency, they uh, leak documents uh, onto some uh, some platform. And uh, um, basically, those are the reasons. Uh, um, and this, I think, would probably fall into that third category. It seems like—I mean, again, I'm just speculating here, but somebody uh, who happens to be on this game platform gets angry and uh, 
uh, at his job or his, her job at the uh, in the U.S. intelligence community or at the Pentagon, and uh, decides to leak a whole bunch of documents to get back at the uh, at the government. There didn't seem to be any real. Uh, uh, intelligent uh, selection of documents. In other words, they, they didn't all focus on, on um, uh, Ukraine. Uh, so it wouldn't be somebody that's just, I'm just focused on Ukraine because I want Ukraine to win or I want Russia to win or I want us to get out of this war or whatever. It didn't seem like it was directly focused on that. It seemed like the person just sort of grabbed uh, the closest stack of documents uh, on his desk and uh, uh, folded them up. You can see the folding marks, uh, stuffed mm -hmm. them in his pocket. And uh, again, it could be a man or a woman. I'm just using uh, a male <laughs> as a hypothetical, since most men, uh, most spies end up being men. But uh, the point is that uh, it didn't seem like there was a lot of planning. This, uh, they put it, the person put it on a desk, and you can see parts of a magazine. It looked like a fairly... Uh, um, uh, a magazine designed for certain people who are interested in guns or something or uh, hunting. Uh, so, you know, that's a clue. And, and you can see the image after you take it, and yet you still put it on the uh, Internet with that little bit of an image there. You're not being very careful. Um, and uh, so it's, it seems like it was sloppy. It seems like it was haphazard, like it was uh, done quickly. And again, to me, it seems like it's somebody who, who did it out of anger. And what about the end of the title of your book and the collapse of America's counterintelligence? Like you're saying right now, this indicates how successful U.S. intelligence is, not, maybe not so much on keeping the secrets, but on gathering them. What about the collapse of America's counterintelligence? Well, that's what I've been describing, the, the fact that, you know, that somebody can uh, take all these secrets and, uh, you know, the American public pay a lot of money for the intelligence agencies to collect this intelligence on Russia and China and all over the world. Uh, and it only takes one person to walk out the door with all this information to cancel it all, actually make it even worse, uh, because then they could do countermeasures and put phony information uh, out there for the U.S. to pick up. So uh, being able to collect all that intelligence is fine. It's very nice. But the problem is they leave the back door open. So you have all these people, uh, the latest one being this person uh, who, uh, you know, put these documents on a gaming platform, um, folded them up, put it in his pocket, and walked out the door. So um, you have this failure at the end. You have success at the beginning in, in order to, co to collect the intelligence, but you have the failure at the end to protect the intelligence. James Bamford, longtime investigative journalist, author of Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Visit democracynow.org to see part one of our conversation with Bamford, talking about how the leaked documents are based on intelligence gathered by the National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. On Tuesday, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby urged reporters not to cover the leaked document, saying, quote, it has no business on the front pages of newspapers or on television. It's not intended for public consumption, and it should not be out there, he said. That does it for our show. Happy birthday to Maria Inez Tarasena and Anna Osbeck. 
I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.